morning. We can do a little better than that. Good morning. There we go. It's wonderful to have you here this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn uh, to John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the last few verses of 2 here, but uh, let's pray before we read. Heavenly Father, we ask that you speak to us through your word this morning. Open our ears, soften our hearts, that we might receive well what you would have us, what you would have us learn. John uh, 2, verse 23. Now when he, he being Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man named uh, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and in the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with, ev- with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, You are a teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, bear witness of what we have seen, but you didn't, do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you did not and do not believe, How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light 
comes into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. It does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Again, Father in heaven, we turn to you now, asking that our hearts be open to you to teach us what belief really looks like. What exactly it is that our belief is centered upon, is founded upon. Help us, Lord, to, to not get caught up in the same trips and mistakes that Nicodemus makes. Not to worry too much about where the wind comes from, just knowing that the wind is blowing. Lord, help us to put our, our faith, our belief solely and completely in the shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to, to plant and firmly fix our feet upon the rock, the testimony that Jesus died and rose for me. That he is first and foremost my Savior, rescuing me from my sins. It's in his precious and holy and, and wonderful name that we pray. Jesus. Amen. So, the astute among you who were here last week might know that I read the same passages that I read last week. And I told you that that's what we were going to do. Uh, there's just kind of too much in this in this particular passage to get into one uh, into one message. At least I think. Um, and and also in addition to that, it's kind of hard to try to just talk about a, a part of it without looking at the whole. And so we've done this at, at different times in different places, reading a larger section that we're actually kind of going to cover. But today we'll look mostly at the second half. What I'm going to call the thing that we really do need to believe, right? We talked last week, and, and, and I'll try to very briefly go over this, and, and if you want to hear more about it, you can listen to the sermon online. It's, it's good. Talk a little bit about that real quick, and then we'll jump into what I think this passage is really primarily about. We started in at the end of chapter 2 at, at what, what we call a transition verse for John. John is using this verse uh, to kind of move us from one main point to, a, to the next main point, all of them kind of being tied together. We're not, we're not ignoring what we've learned in, in the first two chapters, but, but now our focus is going to shift just a little bit. And, and John uses this um, to teach alongside what Jesus is teaching. Often I talk about when we're in the Gospels, I talk about how the Gospel writers are alongside what we're learning with Jesus are teaching us something, are, are teaching us something, uh, either alongside or just trying to emphasize a per particular thing. And we'll see this a, a number of times through the Gospel of John. But what we can see here, so Jesus in chapter 3 is going to have this really long dialogue with, with Nicodemus. Not really long, but for, 
for the gospel. It's a pretty long section. He's going to have this dialogue, and he's going to teach a, a, a pretty specific thing, right? And we're going to, and that's what we're going to focus on mostly today. But what John does with this transition verse, and oftentimes when you see when you see the gospel writer kind of interject a thought, like Jesus doesn't tell us, it's not Jesus' words that tell us that he doesn't entrust himself, he doesn't entrust these people who believe in his name to him, right? This is what, what we see in verses 23 to 25. That's John explaining this to us. And by giving us this bit of information, he's teaching alongside Jesus. Now that's not the point of the message, so I'm not going to spend much more time there. Maybe I just opened a can of worms that I didn't want to open, but here we go. Let's just jump into it. Last week we talked about how Jesus uh, has was doing all these signs and wonders in Jerusalem, and this was convincing people uh, that he is something special, right? And they have this belief in who he is. And then we see this example in Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he makes a confession, and, and it's a good confession, right? He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, because nobody can do the things you're doing unless they're from God. This is a good confession, a good and right confession. A confession that all of us as believers should uh, agree with and have ourselves. But what we are kind of warned about with verses 23 to 25, and what Jesus is going to do then with the conversation with Nicodemus, is he's going to warn us that this isn't the this isn't really what we have to believe in. This isn't the thing that makes Jesus the Christ. Jesus can be a really great moral teacher. But if you are a believer in his name, if you believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior, his moral teaching is not the thing that we focus on. While it's good and fantastic and we should hold it dear and hold it to our hearts, it's a wonderful thing, but it is not the thing. And this is what Jesus then does to Nicodemus as he challenges him with what we talked about last week, a very unusual flow of a conversation. Teacher, rabbi, I know that you're co you come from God. We know that you come from God. And, and Jesus is like, you must be born again, right? And we scratch our heads. And we wonder why Jesus is doing this. And my suggestion from last week is that what Jesus is doing is he's, he's trying to get to the heart of the matter without wasting his time with all this extra fluff. We do need to see Jesus as the good moral teacher. That is not what makes him our Christ. Many people believe that Jesus is a good moral teacher and are not saved. Many Muslims will look to Jesus and try to emulate his actions and follow his teachings. But for them, he's just a prophet. It is not what we hold to. What John kind of shows us in verses 23 to 25, and what Jesus will then kind of pull us along uh, in understanding, is that, is that I, can, I can believe in Jesus in a, in, a, in, a, in a good moral teacher, and it not affect who I am, it not move from head to heart. I can believe that Jesus will, will right the wrongs in our government. But that is not what ultimately saves me. You can believe that Jesus will be, uh, will be there for me whenever I'm, 
uh, hurting or sad or have lost a loved one. And that's good and that's true, but it's not what makes him our Savior. For Nicodemus, we see that he makes this confession. You're a good teacher. I like that. And Jesus says, but you're missing something. You're missing something. We talked very briefly about this last week, and so I'll try to pick it up at this point with what Jesus says to Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, unless you're born again, right? Born again, we cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, as you know, people living in the year 2020 who've maybe gone to church for some or most or all of our lives, we might, we might know that what Jesus is really saying here is he's saying you can't just be, you can't just be the same. You need to be changed, right? This is probably what most of us think when we think about being born again. Being born again means I have a new life, and that new life is that I'm a better person than I was before. That's not really it, right? It's not that Jesus says you need to be born again, and once you're born again, now you have a, a sin-free life. No, now you are no longer of the flesh, but you're of the Spirit. What Jesus is, is confronting uh, Nicodemus, the Pharisee, in, is that, he, that Nicodemus believes that his life, his relationship with God, is marked not by God's love for Nicodemus, but by Nicodemus' actions that are earning him the right. To be in a relationship with his God. This is what the Pharisees believe. That if you don't follow the law exactly. If you don't follow the law perfectly. If you don't get it right. If you fail and just. If you trip up just. God won't love you. And so Nicodemus is hang up. And what he comes to Jesus and confesses. You're a good moral teacher. Fits right along with his pharisaical belief. You're doing a good thing. Telling us to be better people. And Jesus says, it's not about your flesh. It's not about your actions. It's about what defines you as a follower of Christ. Is it that you are a good person? Or is it that the Spirit of God dwells in who you are? And I told you last week that we were going to talk a little bit more about the water bit. In verse 5, he said, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of, the, of water and the Spirit, it cannot, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I told you we would talk more about that. Uh, you could say that I lied, but I planned on talking more about it. But simply put, and, and this is probably not talking about water baptism. It's probably not talking about water baptism, mostly because Jesus hasn't died and raised, changing what baptism becomes. The baptism that, that we have as believers is not the same baptism that John was, was preaching. John is preaching a baptism of repentance. Jesus gives us a baptism of new life that symbolizes the spirit that now dwells in us. So maybe in part we can, we can understand this to be what happens in water baptism. Water baptism not being something that brings me into a relationship with God, but my relationship with God is the mirror that happens in baptism. But what we have to understand about this verse, what Jesus is really Drilling down to, we see in verse 6. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. So in our earthly lives, we're born of the flesh, we're bound to the flesh, and we're tied to the flesh as defining who we are as sinful people because of the fall of man. 
But in our new relationship, when we, when we come to Christ and we place our faith, our belief in Him, something fundamentally changes within us. We are no longer born of flesh, but we are born of spirit. This is what John, or what Paul excuse me, is talking about in a, a, a good portion of the book of Romans. When he talks about how our, our, our focuses change. I'm paraphrasing him just a little bit here. Our focuses change from being the things of my, of my action to the things of God's work. I'm no longer, I'm no longer a, a child of the flesh, but I'm a child of the spirit. I'm no longer a child of Adam, but I'm a child of Christ. And it's in that new life that I am changed. It's in that new life that I am changed. So what Jesus is confronting Nicodemus in is, is the thing that is holding him back from placing his, his belief in Jesus rightly. Nicodemus' focus, and I'm repeating myself here, Nicodemus' focus is on the flesh. It's on the things that Nicodemus can do to earn his way into favor with God. But what Jesus will teach us through, through the gospel is that you, you just simply cannot earn enough favor with God because our sinfulness is so complete and so unrighteous. This is the challenge of Christianity. This is really, for most people, the fundamental breaking point between me being able to believe in Christ as my Savior and me not being able to believe in Christ as my Savior. We're, we're increasingly being taught in our culture that, that really, as people, we're fundamentally good. But we're not. Because of the fall, because of our flesh, because of our actions in life, we're fundamentally sinful. We're broken and distant from God. It is our default, if you will, to turn and to sin against Him. And it's in the simplest of sins. It's in the simplest of sins that drives the eternal wedge between us and God. This is a challenge that we might think that we're good people. And we only think that we're good people most of the time. Maybe I shouldn't say only, but most of us only think that we're good people because we do it comparatively. I look at people like Hitler and I go, I'm not, I'm not him. It's not taken a life cheated on my wife, fill in the blank of whatever thing you look at your life and you go, well, I haven't quite done that, so I'm a pretty good person. But we're comparing ourselves to the wrong person. We're comparing ourselves to fellow sinners when we should be comparing ourselves to the perfect, eternal, holy God who created us, who then calls us to the same perfection. In the law, we're told that be holy because he is holy. Not be holy because the other guy is less holy. And so our sin drives this wedge between us and God, drives this relationship between us, or drives this wedge between the relationship uh, between us and God. And, and, and Nicodemus and his fellow Pharisees, they thought if we just get it right, if we just get it right, which is a good motivation, but it's not the right one. If we just get our actions right, if we just clean up the way we do things, if we just 
know exactly what God means when he says this in the law and do it exactly right, then I'll, I'll earn my way back in favor with God. But the wedge is too big. And what, again, Paul tells us in Romans is that even, even if we think we're going to do good, we're not. Continue to fail. And so Jesus says something fundamentally has to change about your relationship with God. It's no longer about your flesh, but now it's about the spirit that dwells in you. This is the change that happens when Jesus comes and enters into the world. When, when God incarnate comes into the world, changes the way our relationship happens with, with the Father. So he gets right to the heart of the matter with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you cannot, you cannot earn your way back to, to the Lord. You must be born again. Born again this time under a new authority. Born again this time, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. So what does that mean? How do we do that? You know, we get as, as Christians, right, not Christ church, but as Christians, we, we misplace far too easily what makes Christ our Savior. In our world, in our current time, there are many things that we look to and we say, God, be in this moment. And we go, this is how God is going to be our Savior. And, and I don't think we do it on purpose. I think it's just part of the world that we live in. Right? We look to the, to the economy and we, we ask the Lord, please fix the economy, which is a prayer that we should make. And this is, when we focus on that, sometimes we get our attention fixated upon that. Fix my relationships. Or fix my bank account. Fill in the blank. And all these things that we should be turning to the Lord. We should be bathing the, these situations in, in prayer. We should be asking God to be a part of it. But it is not the focal point of what we're doing. It's not what makes Jesus our Savior. And, and, and Nicodemus, he just, he can't get past it. And, and, and can't get past it. He can't get past it. And what I said last week is, is, one of the reasons why this passage might be a little challenging to us is we look at what Jesus does and we might get frustrated with him. We might get frustrated with Jesus. Like, why don't you just tell Nicodemus what he's supposed to believe? We do this with the parables. Why don't you just tell us what we're supposed to believe? But what Jesus is actually doing by telling us parables, by, by, by giving us this strange conversation, is he's, he's challenging us to, to press just a tiny little bit to get it. Everything is there for Nicodemus. If he just presses just a little bit. And then Jesus goes on and tells us exactly what we should believe in him. He tells it to us, right? In verse Starting in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. We could get into this more and talk about the oddities of what's going on here. I think simply put, when, when Moses is in the wilderness, he's being told by God to, to, uh, to give a sign to Pharaoh, right? Moses is asking, how, how am I going to prove to him that I'm coming from God? And throw your, your stick on the ground and it'll become a snake. Now pick the stick up and it'll become a or Pick the snake up again and it'll become a stick. Why do all the words have to start with S? You pick up the snake and it becomes a stick. He lifts up the snake in the wilderness and this is the sign of... This is the sign that God is with Moses. And the sign of God is with Moses, not just with Moses for no reason, but with Moses to save, to save his people. 
Jesus is that same, is that same thing. He, he's lifted up in the wilderness. He's lifted up and becomes, becomes the symbol of salvation to us. But this is where it gets good. Verse 15. It says that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. What is it that we believe? Is it just that the government will be upon His shoulders? Because that's true. Is it just that God will mend our broken relationships? Because that's also true. Is it will He give us peace in times of turmoil? Is it just those things? No. Whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. What is it that we believe? We believe that God loves us so much. God loves us so much despite and maybe even because we are sinners. God loves us so much that even though we turned our backs upon Him, even though He gave us life and breath and joy and happiness and all these wonderful things, even though God has done all these wonderful things to us, we still try to take away His Lordship. That even, even though we, we look at His commands, we look at His laws, and we, we spit on them, that even, even, even though we, we fail and fail and fail and sin and sin and sin, both purposefully and on accident, God still loves us. You sinners. God still loves you. And He loves you so much that He doesn't send a new law. He sends His Son. He sends Jesus to come to this earth to live amongst His creation and to suffer and die on the cross. God loves you so much that He gave His Son for you to have a relationship with you. And John 3.16 is so good, right? It's so good. But it's it's so much better if you just read just a tiny little bit more. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Yeah, you didn't hear me. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to, to save the world. Amen. Somebody, amen. It is really easy for us to look at the life and ministry of Jesus and think that He came to just give us more laws. More things that we just simply can't do. We can look at the law and we go, I'm failing miserably at, Le at Leviticus. I fail miserably at Leviticus. Anybody concur? 
Everybody raise your hands. Even if you don't believe it, everybody raise your hand. We fail miserably at Leviticus. I fail miserably at Leviticus. You fail miserably at Leviticus. And then here comes Jesus, and he says, he says, oh, by the way, if you hate your brother, it's like murder. And so we go, was Jesus coming to give us more than I'm going to fail at? No. Jesus does not come into this world to condemn the world. He comes into this world to save it. And listen, listen how that works. In verse 18, what, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever believes in Jesus is not. If you place your trust and you place your hope and you place your faith in the shed blood of Jesus, you are no longer condemned. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. And this is, this is the kicker. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We can look at Jesus and we can say, he's just bringing more law. He's not. Jesus doesn't come to condemn the world because you are already condemned by your actions, and by your beliefs. Condemnation was already here and is already here. But the beauty is that it's not a new law. It's not a bigger and more complex law. It's a sacrifice. A beautiful sacrifice, verse 19, I think he says it again. I think he explains it to us a second time in a new way so that we might get it. And this is the judgment. The light comes into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. As a believer, I have often thought to myself, why is it that not everybody believes this? Why is it that there are people who look at Jesus and say, nope, right there. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Because of my sinfulness, my wickedness, I don't want you to know that I'm sinful and wicked. I know that you know that I'm sinful and wicked, but I don't want you to know it. I don't want the world to know. I don't want God to know that I'm sinful and wicked. So I hide. So I flee from him. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that may be clearly seen that his works are carried out in God. That God, that God carries my works. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ, we can collectively say amen to John 3.16. God loved me so much that he sent his son to this world, not to condemn me, but to save me. For those of you who have not cast yourself upon Christ because your works are evil, his love is more. His death, which by the way precedes your evil, 
so that you might be saved. That you might be redeemed. And yes, the Bible teaches us again and again and again that we are to be changed physically. Our our life will be marked new. The sins of my past will fade and disappear. Absolutely. But one of the false things that Satan tries to teach us is that in order for God to love you, you have to get to a certain point. But it's not the truth. God loves you exactly as you are. He will do the work of change. He will do the work of restoration. He will do the work of salvation. He will take your He will take your life and He will carry it for you. I do not change my actions so I can be saved. I am saved so I change my actions. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever should believe in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not come. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise Your name. That Your love for me a sinner, a wretch, is so great, is so vast. As Paul puts it in Ephesians, it's immeasurable. There's so much for me that you sent your son to die. To pay a debt that was not his. To reconcile me to you. To heal me. To transform me. Save me. And Lord, I thank you that it's not just for me, but for all who would believe in the name of Jesus. That if we would simply cast ourselves upon His work, that you would forgive our wrongs. That you would fill us with a new life in the Spirit. That you would transform us. Lord, we praise you for this truth. And we ask, it's your Spirit that we know is here in this place, in our hearts, and in our community. 
would scream this truth into the hearts of those who are still unsure. That they wouldn't have opportunity in, anymore to ignore this call. That you would give them strength and courage to receive your son Jesus as their Savior. And to be born new into a life of the Spirit. We thank you. We praise you. And we honor your great name. We pray this in and through and because of Jesus.